0: Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 42. I have had the pleasure of interviewing numerous incredibly impressive people on this podcast, but I have to admit that I was pretty awestruck by listening to Molly Hughes. Still in her 20s, she has already climbed Mount Everest twice from both the South and the North sides, and in January she became the youngest woman in the world to ski solo from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole. Raised in Devon, but based in Edinburgh, Molly's experiences have transformed her from a shy student to someone who commands the stage at large corporate events, sharing her expedition insights through highly popular motivational talks and if you're interested in booking her please contact speakerbuzz.co.uk to find out more. Molly's story is fascinating so slap on your ski boots and dive in. Molly Hughes how are you doing?
0: Hi I'm doing very well thank you how are you?
1: I'm fine. Thanks. Yeah. And I, I'm intrigued to know how somebody who has such a love for the, for the outdoors and extreme expeditions is coping with lockdown. How is life for you at the moment?
0: Yeah, it's, it's okay. You know, it's different, isn't it? And it's, it's a strange time for all of us. Um, and yeah, I guess for me, the biggest thing is being stuck inside is, is pretty hard. I guess I'm used to being in these kind of vast open landscapes and that's really what I love in life. Um, so being stuck in my, my small flat in Edinburgh for the last, however long it's been, seven, eight weeks now, um, is a little bit strange.
1: I've got visions of you scaling Arthur's Seat about 20 times a day. Have you-
0: yeah, I've been up there a couple of times or just the local park, laps of the local park, um, quite a few bike rides as well. I've been enjoying cycling a lot more um, in lockdown because you feel a little bit more free, I think, when you can cycle and, and travel slightly further away from home.
1: Um, do you have a kind of standard there's somebody who obviously has to be incredibly fit do you have a standard sort of fitness regime or does it vary depending on on what is in the pipeline
0: yeah exactly it kind of varies with whatever expedition I've got Um, and if I've got a big expedition coming up I find it really easy to train because I I just know that the harder I train and the fitter I am the better I'll be on that trip but in between trips it's definitely a little bit harder to to train Um, but I've been enjoying it during lockdown um, trying to yeah, work out as much as I can just for that kind of outdoor space and that, that bit of headspace, I think.
1: So Molly, where did life start for you? I think you're from Devon originally. So what you could tell us a bit about your your, your background and, and growing up there.
0: Yeah, so I grew up in South Devon, um, a place called Torbay, which is a really touristy spot um, on the south coast of Devon. Um, but very beautiful around there. There's, there's really great beaches. Um, yeah, just a, a normal upbringing, um, pretty outdoorsy as a family. We'd always be at the beaches. I learnt to surf when I was um, 12 or 13 and just kind of fell in love with that, uh, climbing and hiking. Um, but no, we had, had a really nice childhood down in Devon.
1: And did your parents have a sort of sense of adventure and in them that you've inherited?
0: Um, to an extent. Definitely not uh, anything to the, the kind of stuff that I've been doing. Um, just like an outdoorsy lifestyle, I think. My dad's really into kayaking. Uh, my mum's a gardener by profession, um, oh, right. so, Yeah, so we're always outside. Um, but no, nothing to the level of, of big expeditions I've taken on.
1: Well, they, they must be very proud of what you've achieved since. And I believe it was a, a school trip to Mount Kenya that kind of changed your life. What happened then?
0: Yeah, so when I was um, 17, so my first year of sixth form, uh, my school kind of advertised this expedition to go off to Kenya. Um, we do some charity work. Uh, and then have a chance to climb Mount Kenya at the end of this trip. Um, and it was one of those trips where you've got to, like, email or, or write to every company you can find to try and try and raise the money, do, like, weeks of backpacking in supermarkets. Um, so I did all that for about a year, raised all the money I needed, um, and went and joined this trip in Kenya. And that really was kind of the starting point, I think, of adventure for me. And it opened my eyes so much to to travel. It was the first time I'd been to Africa. Um, yeah, so travel, seeing really, really different cultures, And then also getting this chance to climb Mount Kenya was was amazing. Um, And it pushed me and it challenged me at quite a young age. Um, But getting to the top, uh, I kind of realized that that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I think, around that point on on top of Mount Kenya.
1: So what was it about that experience that that was so exciting?
0: Um, It's a beautiful mountain, um, firstly, but also just the the kind of experience of really pushing myself because it was hard and and you had to push really deep. And dig really deep but with that comes the reward and i think that's the first time i really realized that the harder something is when it works out in your favor the, the bigger the, the sense of achievement is And getting to that top of that mountain and that the clouds were swirling around us and they'd kind of open up and you'd see the savanna like hundreds of meters below us um it was wow. so so rewarding to get up there um and then i guess i started to realize that the harder you can push yourself um on other trips and other mountains even bigger the rewards that you get an even bigger kind of sense of sense of achievement
1: so you you decided then at the age of 17 that really what you wanted to do was to to, to be an, an adventurer of sorts uh you know to climb mountains i mean how is that what you were telling people when when you left school i mean because presumably there's there's always pressure on people, isn't there, to, to pursue a sort of sensible career path. So how did that all pan out? <laughs>
0: um, yeah, not at all. I, I wasn't telling people. I didn't even know <laughs> really if that was what I wanted to do. I just had a bug for for travel and for right. adventure. Um, but I guess as, as a teenager and as a kid, I was pretty shy. So I never really had that much confidence. So I don't think I would have put myself out there and been like, yeah, I'm going to be a mountain climber when I grow up. Mm. Um but deep down, kind of in the back of my mind, I knew that that's what I loved most in life, was a venture. Um, so, yeah, I feel incredibly lucky to, to be where I, I am now and have had all the kind of experiences over the last uh, 12, 11, 12 years that I have had.
1: So, so what did, did you have a sort of another career originally then? What, what were you doing?
0: Um, so I went to uni after, yeah. after that school trip, um, went to university in Bristol, and I studied um, psychology with sports biology. So a uni, you know, you've got so many different ideas of what your life will be like mm. and careers you want to have. Um, I kind of had everything up in the air, like I wanted to be a sports psychologist for a while, um, wanted to be a police officer the next week. Um, also, when I was a bit younger, I wanted to be a vet for a long time. <laughs> um, but I guess the, the kind of turning point came in my last year of uni because I was writing my dissertation. Um, and I kind of knew for this project, I had to write about something really interesting because I guess I wasn't that academic I, I had to have dyslexia so i struggled a little bit at uni um so the idea of like sitting down and writing like, a ten thousand word essay was quite intimidating um yeah. so i guess i knew i had to write about something really interesting so i kind of had this love for mountaineering and i decided to investigate the psychological experience of climbing mount Everest yeah. um, before i'd even like thought about it or or thought that i could do it myself um mm. And I found these seven guys around the country um, that all summited in the, in the previous like 10 years. Um, and managed to sit down with them all and interview them, um, right. which which was amazing. And just learning from their experiences, I wrote this big, big project all about it. Um, and yeah, within the first interview, I knew that it was something I wanted to do and not right. just write about, but get, get <laughs> a chance to, to see it for myself.
1: So what, when did you, when when you left university, what did you... Do next? I mean, you presumably, did you get a job or were you just immediately thinking, right, I've, I've got to find a way of getting up Everest?
0: Yeah, it, it happened straight away because it was those last kind of few months of, of uni in 2011 where I was writing this project. Um, and I then spent the next 12 months uh, training, sponsorship hunting, which is the hardest thing in the world because Everest costs thousands and thousands. Um, and at the time, I, I knew nothing about business or, or marketing myself or, or PR. So I was kind of trying to apply and um, engage all these big companies to, to come on board as sponsors, but I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so it took a long time, months and months of, of trying to get sponsorship and training and, and climbing as much as I could. And then, yeah, 12 months later, found myself on the, on the slopes of Mount Everest.
1: So how, how was that experience? Very difficult for most of us to imagine. But I mean, what, what were some of the highs and lows of that expedition?
0: Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Um, the, the whole time I was just in absolute kind of awe, awe and wonder at this mountain. Like I focused focus on it so much in, in writing that project um, and then spent that whole year completely focused on this goal of, of getting to Mount Everest. And when I finally got there, it, it definitely didn't, didn't let me down. Um, I remember just stopping at times and looking around me and having to like pinch myself that I was actually climbing Mount Everest and I was actually kind of heading to the top of the world. Um, and it it was amazing it definitely had its low points um it was unbelievably challenging like i guess i I thought i knew quite a lot about it after writing that project and speaking to so many people and and kind of studying the mountain for so long um but you can't really comprehend how hard it is until you're actually there right and the kind of like physiologically how much it takes to climb through the death zone so above eight thousand meters where there's such little oxygen up there and how much you've just got to push yourself to, to keep going every day um and and big things like uh having to cross these horrible crevasses uh you've got danger of avalanches um quite a few people died this season i was there so i think 12 people died in, in the two months we were there um so all of this is kind of going on around you um but you've still got to kind of maintain uh, a level of focus to get yourself to the top
1: it sounds absolutely terrifying. I mean, <laughs> does, does does fear, do you feel a, a sense of fear when you're doing something like that? Or do you just have to kind of somehow push that to the back of your mind?
0: Yeah, no, I, I feel fear. Um, I feel it a lot. I've actually got uh, a bit of a fear of heights. Um, <laughs> 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 so maybe not the best career for me to choose. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I've never, never liked heights, always struggled with it. Um, and I guess in a way, that's why I kind of, push myself in the mountains and and try and get over that um but yeah I felt it on on the on Everest the first time um yeah a lot fear was there constantly um but it's just about I guess learning to control it because fear shouldn't stop us doing things it can be controlled and if you can control it you can yeah push on to, to achieve anything
1: i've always wondered what it's like when you actually get to the the top of of everest the very summits i mean do you do you hang around for half an hour you know (laughs) have a picnic take some pictures or is it just god we've got there and then straight down again
0: yeah i I was thinking someone about this last night actually because there's i don't know in a lot of like songs and music they always sing about being on top of the world and, and getting to the highest point on earth. And it being this just like amazing euphoric experience. Um, mm. But it's definitely not like that. It is <laughs> a lot of pain. Um, so when I got to the summit for the first time on the South side, I'd been climbing up from camp Four for 12 hours. So I've been climbing throughout the night for 12 hours. So getting to the top finally at like eight in the morning, I was completely exhausted physically and mentally hardly drunk or eating anything throughout the whole night um and you're happy to get to the top you're relieved to get to the top but you've also got this thought in the back of your mind that okay now i've got to turn around Mm. and get down this mountain and you know that statistically way more people die or get into trouble on the way down than the way up Um, oh really yeah yeah for sure because i guess people are so exhausted um Mm. and it's so easy to make little mistakes um to slip or trip on your crampons to not clip into ropes properly and also you've just been exposed to that um, hypoxia, that lack of oxygen up there for, for even longer. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's not really the place to celebrate or, or let your bar <laughs> down on top, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: as you alluded to there, you, I mean, you, you climbed Everest. That was from the south side, but then you did it again. I think you became the first woman in the world to climb Everest from both the north and south sides.
0: Um, is that I became the first English woman to climb it from right. the north and All south right. Yeah, right. and I was the youngest woman at the time. Um
1: Oh, okay. So, I mean, how so doing it again, I mean, how, how did the two expeditions compare?
0: Yeah, so I guess coming off Everest the first time, it was 2012 the first time. Um, and I definitely didn't want to see another mountain again for, for a long time after that because there was so much suffering and fear and it just took took everything to get up there and down again. Um, but I guess with, with time, it gets a little bit easier to forget pain. <laughs> so I don't know if, if anyone's kind of had this experience. People always tell me, I wouldn't know, but people say it's a bit like childbirth. You tend to feel like the pain after a while and you just remember the good things. So after, I don't know, 12 months or so, all I could really remember were amazing sunrises that you get on Everest, these incredible Mm. sunsets. And I guess the views as you're taking those final few steps up towards the summit. Um, And I always kind of had in the back of my mind this kind of feeling that I'd only really experienced half of this mountain, Um, the south side, the south route from um, Nepal, and I knew that there's this whole other main route on the north side of the mountain, where you climb up from Tibet, um, a route that's like steeped in history. That's the first side that British climbers are trying to climb in the, in the 1920s. And there's amazing stories of Mallory and Irvine um, trying to get to the top, and nobody really knows if they made it or not. Um, so this side of the mountain was always in the back of my mind. And I think because I suffered so much on the south side, and because I, I didn't really enjoy that experience of of getting to the top or or the summit night because it was such a struggle. Um, I really wanted to go back and try this north side, um, mm-hmm. which was harder, um, like technically harder, or so much colder and windier on the north side. Um, but I couldn't get it out of my head. Um, so after I um, decided to do it, and usually the, the decision the decision comes when you tell someone the idea, and as soon as mm. you say that idea out loud, um, there's kind of no going back from that point. Um, so after I did that, I then spent what was I think another three years sponsorship hunting trying to get all the funding together um right. and and training for the north side and then yeah I went to the north side in 2017.
1: And that's it now you're not going to go for the hat trick?
0: Uh no Everest wise I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm done with it. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: and and then you know intriguingly after, after obviously doing a lot of mountaineering you you embraced uh, an incredibly difficult challenge as well but a, a different sort by skiing solo to the uh the south pole just a few months ago so what prompted that uh, idea
0: yeah so um (laughs) again it took a while to recover from the Everest one or at least Mm to contemplate another big expedition um was probably yeah going on another 12 months before I yeah even thought about doing anything else um and I think Antarctica always kind of held a bit of an allure over me I'd um, like researched it quite a lot. I actually used to live with a guy who worked for the British Antarctic Survey, um, oh, right. and he'd done a few kind of field seasons down there, and he'd come back with these amazing pictures and videos, and I just kind of loved hearing about it. Um, so I knew Antarctica was somewhere I wanted to go and see, um, but it, it's hard to get down there if you're not working down there. It costs a lot just to go as a tourist. Um, mm. And then I started to kind of research more and realize that there were these big expeditions that people do. Um, The biggest ones usually being traveling from the the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole. Um, And then I realized that if I did this one route, which would be 700 miles of skiing, um, and if I did it solo, so completely on my own, um, I'd be the youngest woman ever to do that. So that's where I kind of found out that there was a sponsorship avenue. And if I could use my going for this record to get spots on board, then that would be my chance to to go to Antarctica and and see it fully, all, all, all those 700 miles of it. Yes.
1: <laughs> you certainly saw a lot of it. And I, I believe you, you had to contest with very severe weather conditions as well. So yeah. What, what, was, what was it like?
0: Yeah, it, it was <laughs> like, um, it's still so fresh. I got I got to the South Pole on the 10th of January. Um And we're now in the middle of May. Um, So it's still quite fresh and all still in my mind. Um, And it it basically started pretty badly um, because I I got dropped off at my start point um, by a small little plane, a little twin otter. Um, And they dropped me off there and I was completely alone. And the kind of few hours after they dropped me off, the weather was beautiful. It was sunny. It was reasonably warm. The skiing was flat. Um, But within a couple of hours, the weather just completely turned on me. And I had an eight day of of complete whiteout. So I I don't know if you've ever experienced a whiteout in the mountains at all, but um, basically imagine being like inside a ping pong ball, or at least you can't see more than like two feet in front of you. And Mm. left looks the same as right, and right looks the same as left, and up looks the same as down. Um, So you're just in this kind of ping pong ball for eight days solid. Um, And with that whiteout, I had like storm force winds, they were gusting. Like over fifty knots fifty five knots um and really cold temperatures with the winds as well. It got down to about minus forty five um, so the first eight or nine days of this trip, I got absolutely battered by the weather um I've never experienced weather like that and and of course, I hardly made any progress because of this this weather was so bad mm. um, so yeah, it hit me really hard straight away, and tons of worry and anxiety of of making it to the end on time if my mm. my supplies were going to run out um but after the, that first yeah nine days um the weather started to improve which was, was really good there, there was more bad weather along along the route more whiteout more storms um but overall the weather got much better and I could finally see where I was going um which was the most amazing, amazing experience when that sun finally came out um after the whiteout and then yeah ahead of me was another another what 40 44 days of skiing I think
1: so it's an incredibly difficult, um, I, I say as if I know what I'm talking about, which I clearly don't, but incredibly difficult physical challenge and surely mental as well. Did you feel did it feel incredibly lonely being in the middle of this sort of wilderness?
0: Yeah, um, I guess with all these challenges, they're definitely more mental than they are physical. Um, like physically, Antarctica was incredibly hard. Um, I was pulling a sled behind me that weighed 100 or 5 kilograms with all my supplies in it which we worked out the other day, is like the weight of an international rugby player. Um, so it's pretty, pretty heavy. Um, and then you're skiing all day, every day. And it's uphill as well, um, because you, you start close to the coast um, or right. close to sea level. Also. And then the South Pole is at 2,800 metres. So it's uphill that way. So yeah, physically it's horrendous. And you're skiing for yeah, 10, 11 hours a day. Um, mm. But it really is the, the mental side of it that is the most challenging, especially on a solo expedition. Because there's no one to uh, rely on, there's no one to make decisions with, no one to make you laugh, make you smile, or, or give mm. you a, give you a hug, even when you're feeling a bit down. Um, so yeah, as, as hard as it was physically, I think that expedition to Antarctica was, um, do know, seventy eighty percent mental? I think.
1: Are, are you able to do any kind of call, you know, satellite calls or anything like that, occasionally to check in with
0: family yeah. and? Yeah, so I had sat phones, um, and every evening I'd have to check back in with the um, the kind of backup on the coast. So on the coast, went out to to, a big camp there, and I would have to ring them every evening and let them know that like I was well, give them my location, um, which was really kind of reassuring in a way. And you'd look forward to that five minute chat all day, and you'd I'd always make sure that like my tent was put up in time, and I was in my tent, cozy, ready to make that chat, so I could properly kind of talk to them.
1: I I read somewhere that you, you had to eat four four and a half thousand calories a day just to, to cope with the physical challenge. So yes. what,
0: what what
1: do you eat? What do you eat in the Antarctica when you're skiing?
0: Um, as much as you possibly can. <laughs> um, so I guess because 'cause I'm pulling everything that sled, I, I wanted it to be as light as I possibly could get it. So it's a lot of like freeze dried meals. Um and you can get these packets of all sorts of different things from like spaghetti bolognese to shepherd's pie or different curries right. and stuff. Um, and then you just melt snow, add, add the boiling water to these packets. Um, and each one of them had about a thousand calories in, which was, right. was a that's, lot. Um, e- each morning I would try and eat porridge. Um, <laughs> but I guess before this trip, I knew I didn't really like porridge. I've always known <laughs> I didn't really like it. Um, but I just thought like, that's what you need, isn't it? When you're out in the cold. Um, but I regretted it like on day two and I was trying to (laughs) force myself for (laughs) it. Um, and then just as much as I possibly could. So like lots of of chocolate, lots of, uh, cheese and salami. I would add big kind of blocks of butter to my evening meals as well. (laughs) Got about (laughs) another 300 calories in it. Um, yeah, as much as I could, but still I was in definitely in like an energy deficit each day. Um, I lost about 10 kilos on the whole trip. So wow. I, I reckon I was probably burning about 5,000 calories a day. Good
1: grief. Incredible. And I, I, I believe that you, I think music can be a really good thing, can't you, to get you through these experiences, but your Spotify stopped working. Yeah. That, that, was, that was a big blow.
0: That was a bad day. That was, yeah. um, so it turns out if you don't connect your Spotify to the internet for like 30 days, um, it just stops working. Um, Oh, right. And I'd kind of heard a rumor of this, but I didn't want to believe it. Um, <laughs> and then, then come on day 30, it stopped working. Um, but luckily, I had like a backup iPod from about 2002. Oh, um, right, okay. Which was good and it did okay in the cold, um, but it just had music on it from 2002. So there was lots of um, Britney Spears and Shania <laughs> Twain and, and ACDC and all sorts of stuff. <laughs>
1: Just adds to the surreal nature of the uh, expedition, I guess. Yeah, it was
0: weird listening to Shania Twain and, and skiing across Antarctica.
1: <laughs> I interviewed um, actually a few years ago Craig Matheson, who I think was the first Scott to ski to the South Pole, and he had some horrendous. I think he had to cut off part of his toe and and pull out part of a tendon on his leg and strap it to his leg. Did you manage to avoid any terrible kind of physical uh, problems?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I got to the end of the expedition in pretty good stead. Um, I think after that storm at the beginning, I just knew that like my number one priority on that trip had to be to look after myself. Um, And if I didn't look after myself, I was never going to make it any further. So like avoiding injury was, was so important and I never pushed myself too hard. I'd always kind of rein myself in. Like if I got to the end of the day and I'd done my 11 hours of skiing that day, and I felt okay. And in the back of my mind, my head was telling me, hey, just go for it. Go for another hour of skiing. You're feeling fine today. I would actually kind of rein it in and, and stop myself skiing any further that day just to look after myself because I knew that the next day I had to get up and ski for another 11 hours. Um, so I think looking after myself physically out there was, was one of the most important things. Um, I had a little bit of cold injury on my cheek, just a really small patch um, because it's just so hard to, to kind of cover your face enough out there. I had kind of every face mask on, every goggle, a big kind of fur ruff around my hood, but it does kind of get in in different places. Um, but that was the only injury. Apart from that, I, I felt good coming coming into the pole, yeah, after 50, what, 58 days.
1: <laughs> and what's it like? Because uh, at least, you know, as a, unlike climbing Everest, you arrive at this station there with people presumably giving you a bit of a warm welcome and something to eat?
0: Yeah, a, a much nicer experience to, to finishing a trip than on Everest. Well, on, on Everest, I guess you're focused on the top um, and then you still go get down again. But as soon as I reached the South Pole, that was it, it over. And I didn't have mm-hmm. to put my skis on the next day and I had a beer and I could finally relax. Um, wow. So the logistics company who were like my backup out there, they have a big camp just outside the kind of South Pole Station Um because the actual South Pole Station is a big American science base, and you can't really right. go in there or, or wander around because they're doing all sorts of science stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So we're based just outside the pole. Um, and that was amazing. Yeah, skiing into camp and seeing my friend Devon in camp and having a hug for the first time in a long time, um, and right. good food and people mm-hmm. to talk to. It was amazing.
1: So now, Molly. I mean, you've been you do a lot of motivational speaking, which I, I can I can see why. And but what insights do these kind of incredible experiences of yours bring to to that role?
0: Yes, I've been doing a lot of motivational speaking uh, since 2012. So since my first trip to Everest, um, just started really small. Like I would get invited to um my old school or the local wi group um which was a really kind of nice way to get into it and, and gain a bit mm. of confidence um and then since then since 2012 just kind of building it up um and now i do a lot of a lot of corporate speaking which i absolutely love and still do a lot of school visits um because I, I really really enjoy working with young people and having a bit of a, a positive impact on them is amazing um and I talk about all sorts of things from uh, resilience and, and how to build resilience and kind of unlock it in ourselves um, to self-belief and that difference between self-belief and self-confidence. Um, I talk a lot about controlling fear, which was so important for me on Everest, especially when nice. crossing those big crevasses and, and dealing with heights. has always been a big thing for me. Um, and I think more kind of recently since coming back from Antarctica, focus has been a lot on on isolation and how to deal with isolation um and i've actually been trying to help people as much as possible during the last seven weeks and in this kind of weird time of being in lockdown um and kind of using those lessons that i learned from spending 58 and a half days on my own in antarctica Hmm. to to try and help people a little bit Hmm. at the moment
1: and you're still young i've said the mind boggles as to what else you might achieve have you got any any plans, <laughs> any thoughts in your mind about what could be next?
0: Oh, thank you. I'm actually turning 30 next month. Um, That's so still, yeah. I am starting to feel a bit old now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's next is a good question. And I think, you remember I said at the beginning that it takes a bit of time after getting back from a trip to kind of reevaluate, forget the pain, and think about a next expedition. Um, so hmm. I haven't really got any big expeditions planned at the moment, or even in my mind. I'm still kind of enjoying being home. Um, but I definitely know that I want to start running expeditions and trips for, for other people and start kind of sharing these experiences that I've had with other people. Um, I've had so many incredible experiences around the world. Um, it'd be so nice to share it with people and especially young people. Like I really love working with, with teenagers and, and trying to have a positive influence on them. Um, so I think moving forward after COVID-19, that's something I'm going to be trying to do a lot more.
1: Uh, and all these adventures that you've been on, do you think they, they have changed you?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I don't know who, who I would be, really, if I hadn't mm. had these experiences. Um, I think it changed me in so many ways, as in open my eyes to the, to the world and how amazing the world is. Um, but more kind of personally, I guess mm. I've grown so much confidence through these expeditions. Like I said at the beginning, I was very shy as a teenager, um, at school and at uni, didn't have that much self-confidence. Um, and that's just grown so much through, through proving to myself that I can do these kind of things and I, and I can achieve things um, on on quite a, a harsh scale. Um, and also mm. just just the building of, of resilience. I think you don't really build resilience unless you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And I spent the last 10, 11 years now now pushing myself every time I go on a trip um, or even when I just go climbing at home in Scotland, um, pushing myself as much as I can. And that's really how, how resilience is built. Um, so, yeah, these trips have, have been everything for me.
1: It's fascinating, Molly. It's really fascinating. I've got five quick questions for you here. Quick okay. answers, please. Okay. <laughs> what What is the last book that you read?
0: Um, oh, I'm kind of almost finished one, if that counts. And it's called The, the Heat of the Moment um, by this amazing female firefighter.
1: All right. Okay. Well, that's warm, <laughs> warming you up a bit after your Antarctic experience. Yeah, exactly. Um, where is your favorite place in the world?
0: Oh God, so that's two bigger questions. Um, mm. Let's say, let's say Nepal. Absolutely love Nepal.
1: Okay, let's go for something really trivial then. What's for tea tonight?
0: Um, I just got some mints out of the freezer. And I'm going to make spaghetti and meatballs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One of your favourites from Antarctica, wasn't it? It's the old spaghetti. Yeah, that was um, there was a yeah.
0: favourite in Antarctica.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what What was the first record you brought? Or mp3 cd
0: whatever. um do i have to say <laughs> yeah it, it, i think it was jerry halliwell just after, all oh, right it, yeah, <laughs> <Spice> yeah.
1: <laughs> excellent that's fair enough and finally which other adventurer do you most admire
0: oh good question there are so many great ones out there and so many people doing great things um uh, i think i'd have to say my my friend and fellow speaker at speaker buzz cal major who's a power boarder and, a, and an environment enthusiast. She's wicked.
1: Well, thank you so much for that. I mean, I interviewed some amazing people in this, this series. I'm always full of admiration, but this is I'm just kind of awestruck by what you've done, to be honest. It's been fascinating to get a bit of an insight into it. So thanks very much, Molly.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Hope you enjoyed that. It'll be intriguing to see what Molly does next. We'll be back again in a fortnight. Bye for now.
0: To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit
1: sbn.scot.